0: So uh, one day when I was in high school, I was at my friend's house and we were playing his Xbox, which typically wouldn't be that uh, noteworthy, except he was not supposed to be playing his Xbox. When he got in trouble, uh, what his dad would do when he would want to take away his video games is instead of, I don't know, just taking away his system or whatever, he would just take his power cord away and he would hide it. After a while, my friend started to figure out where his dad hid his power cord, and so what he would do is he would go and take said power cord, play his Xbox, and then when he was done, he would put it back. And this went on for a while until the one day it didn't, and I happened to be there, so that was great. To make it worse, as we were in his room playing Xbox, and then he left to go somewhere, and I know he he had to have been coming back, otherwise I wouldn't have stayed there, so he was gone. And I'm in his room playing his Xbox, and I hear his dad walking up the stairs. Now, there is no reason for him to be walking up the stairs unless he found out something was missing. And so I had about five seconds to figure out how I was going to pretend that I didn't know that we were not supposed to be playing Xbox. So he walks into the room, asks me what I'm doing. I was like, oh, I'm playing Xbox. And he was mad, not so much at me, but mad that his son had taken this thing. And so I pretended like I had no idea we weren't supposed to be playing it. And I ended up leaving. And was this whole thing. And, and all that to say, right, eventually my friend was doing this for a while, but eventually it caught up to him. Right? He thought he could get away with it, but eventually it was no more. And today I share that because we're going to take a brief a three-week wo- a look through the book of Nahum before we get back into the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things we are going to see, although that is not the perfect analogy, is that God is patient uh, and God is kind. But he will one day right every wrong, and he will one day uh, uh, make everything unjust, make it just. And Nahum is a story of that. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Nahum chapter 1. If not, there's a black one somewhere around you. Now, if you are reading one of the black Bibles, you have a head start because it tells you the page number. If you have your own Bible that you brought, let me just tell you, there ain't no shame and open up to page one, you'll find a table of contents Well, they will tell you where Nahum is. Here's why you should have no shame. The person sitting to your right and to your left also has no idea where Nahum is, okay? And so you can all figure it out together. So we're going to be in Nahum chapter one. This morning, If you don't know anything about Nahum, you're in good company because most people probably don't know anything about Nahum. In fact, you might not have even known this was a book of the Bible. And so here we go. I want to do this really quickly. I'm going to give you a few historical pieces of information to try to get us on the same page as we read this book. Um, The first thing is this book was written by the prophet and priest Nahum somewhere between 660 BC and 615 BC. Uh, We know that because of the few historical references in the book in chapter three, For example, it talks about the fall of Thebes, which was a historical event that happened in 663 BC. Thebes at the time was the capital of Egypt. And then it talks about the uh, coming fall of the city of Nineveh. He's prophesying against the city of Nineveh, saying it's going to happen, which we know ended up happening in 612 BC. So somewhere within those years, probably somewhere most, most likely between 640 and 615, Nahum prophesied against Nineveh. Now, uh, Nahum was a prophet in Israel. Again, the point of this book is to announce that the capital city of Assyria, which up until this point is the strongest nation in world history, is going to fall. Now, during the time of Nahum, Judah, which he was, uh, Judah and Jerusalem, which is the southern kingdom, was essentially a vassal state to Assyria, and the northern kingdom of Israel, because they had split prior to this, was under captivity, both for over about a hundred years, and so the northern kingdom is under captivity of Assyria. The southern kingdom, which is called Judah, where Jerusalem was located, was a vassal state, which means they weren't necessarily under their rule, but they had to pay heavy taxes to them and pretty much do whatever they... Set. Now, you might find this interesting. While you might not be familiar with Nahum, many of you are probably familiar with the book of Jonah. Uh, Nahum is actually it's kind of like a sequel to the book of Jonah, where God called Jonah to go preach repentance to Nineveh. He didn't want to do it because he knew God was patient and kind. Nineveh repented, and so God didn't bring them destruction. However we know that that didn't happen very long because soon after Jonah came on the scene and they repented they started to uh, build their wealth build their military and do some horrific things to the nations around them and so Jonah was on the scene about 750 to 777 uh, BC uh, and 722 so about 50 years after that Assyria took over uh, the northern kingdom and made Judah a vassal state so there's a lot of things happening here um, and last thing I would say is that this book what you're going to find mind is about God's character and his judgment on evil. And one of the things that this will do is it's an invitation for you and for me, for us to remember the proper way to read and understand scripture. Uh, the proper way to read and understand scripture is not to read something and to say, what does this mean to me? Scripture is not about you. It is not about me. It is not about us. It is about God and who he is and his character. And so Nahum, for example, if you were to read this in your personal devotion time, you would likely be confused of what in the world am I supposed to do with this? But the invitation for us is to come and to know him. And so this book is about the judgment coming to Nineveh and who God is. And so we'll have fun with it. Here we go. Nahum chapter one, starting in verse one. Here's what it says. It says, the pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. So Nahum begins his book with a reference to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, as he describes for us who the Lord is. Now, a fun fact of Bible trivia, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is the most quoted scripture in scripture. Um, this is God revealing his character to Moses. It'll be on the screen. Here's what it says. It says, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is what Nahum is referencing. Now, interestingly enough, Nahum re- references in, in verse 2 that God is a jealous God. And he references Exodus to describe who God is. Now, the difficult thing when the Hebrew writers, the Old Testament talks about God being a jealous God is it's easy for us to not understand what they're actually saying. Because when we think of jealousy, we think of negative like if we think of it in a negative sense because that 's all it is in english typically uh, it 's like um, you bear a grudge against someone you, you resent someone for what you have you 're bitter that they have what you don 't have, and so it can lead well known people like Oprah years ago to say she has a problem with the God of the Bible because he is jealous, and that doesn 't seem right. God should not be jealous. What we miss is that in Hebrew, jealous can have both positive and negative connotations. Uh, the positive connotation is this idea where you advocate for the benefit of someone else. Or put another way, if you are jealous for somebody's good. So if you have kids, for example, you would be you would be or are jealous for your children, right? You care for them, you want to fight for them, you want to protect them, you want to make sure they are okay. And in the Hebrew, it can have, again, that positive sense, or it could have a negative sense of being bitter or resentful to what somebody has. Now, when we're trying to figure out which jealousy would better describe God, what we, you and I should remember is that there is nothing that God wants that he cannot have. And there is nothing that you have that he wants, right? There's nothing that God wants that he cannot have because he's the creator and sustainer of all things. And there is nothing that you have that he wants, that he cannot get for himself. So when the Old Testament talks about God being jealous, it is not this bitterness, resentful, want what you have. It is a, I care for my people and I want good for them. And it is because of that, that this judgment against Nineveh happens. So if we'll keep reading uh, back in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, here's what it says next halfway through. It says, his path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Verse four, he rebukes the sea and dries it up, and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. So, what Nahum does here is he moves from who God is to what God does. That God is the creator and sustainer of all things, that also means that he can decreate things, he can build things up, and he can tear them apart. And so what Nahum does here is he's, he's, he's recalling what the Israelites went through in the Exodus when God parted the sea for them to walk through in verse four, when it says he rebukes the sea and dries it up and he makes all the rivers run dry, that God controls all things. And so for us, again, the geography and and all the things going on there are probably not familiar for you and for me since we don't live there and we don't live in this time. But Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon are part of the most fertile areas of Palestine. It's what's known as today as the Fertile Crescent. So in the midst of the humidity and the drought and the high heat, there's, a, a, period, there's a, a section of land in the Middle East that, in spite of all these things, still produces a lot of fruit, which is the geography of these places that Nahum mentions. And so in the Middle East, particularly in most of human history, when you're an agricultural society, drought was a very big deal. But this particular stretch of land was the, could, could withstand drought better than any place else, right? And the point here is that the, if the Lord rebukes the, sin, the, 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 the sea, rather, he, he dries up Carmel and he strikes fear in all the world, what can the wicked do? Even these places that seem to be unaffected by the weather, even God can control them. And what Nahum is presenting to us as he begins this prophecy against Nineveh is this, that nothing can stand before the Lord. What he's saying to them in very clear terms is that no matter who you are, no matter where you might be located, everything is under the dominion of God. Now for us, it's different, right? We might think our technology or our science or our progress can save us, that we can control a lot of things, we can manipulate a lot of things to make sure we have a comfortable life and we know where everything is going to come from for us. So, we can, If we have a problem, we know how to fix it. Right? And what Nahum is saying is that no matter who you are, where you live, what time period of history you might find yourself in, we have nothing in comparison to the power of God, right? Even us in modern Western society have experienced this the last couple of years with COVID changing everything. All of your plans that you had were radically changed completely beyond your control. <clears throat> now it's interesting, right? There's nothing quite like thinking everything's okay and then realizing it's, it isn't. Uh, so, like for example, and no shame on this. Raise your hand. For example, if you have ever run out of gas, anyone ever run out of gas? Uh, wh- okay. Wow. Okay. How about this? Any of you have a spouse, and and it could be husband or wife, and let's say that spouse likes to conveniently forget to fill up the gas tank, and often find yourself looking at the dashboard with five miles left in the tank. Does that have ever happened to anybody? He's like, don't do it, don't, don't raise your hand, right? That's right. Okay, we got one brave man right there, right? That might happen to me every once in a while. In fact, uh, I, until recently, have never run out of gas. I didn't know what it was like to feel like you're fine and then realize you're not until a couple of weeks ago, or sorry, a couple months ago, I was driving on 540, and I wasn't paying attention to look down, and my car started to slow down. I was out of gas, and I had to pull over to the side of the road, which, you know, <clears throat> is already not good enough, because it's like, this really stinks, and it was unexpected, To make matters worse, I didn't have my phone with me, right? I left it at home. So I'm pulling over. I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, literally, I have no idea what I'm going to do, right? So I turn my blinkers on, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, (laughs) I'm going to walk home? Like, wait till Christina gets worried enough to, like, drive and try to find me? I don't know. But fortunately, like, 15, 20 seconds after I put my blinkers, some very kind soul pulls over and says, do you need any help? And so, and as I get out of my car and begin to explain to them uh, what happened, I woke up. It was a dream. I was sleeping, right? So, so I have no idea what it's like to run out of gas. So I don't know. It's like. but, but I was scared, right? I was scared. No, what does that have to do with anything, right? That's maybe just a small example, but there's nothing quite like realizing that you are not in control. And this most powerful nation in the world, the most powerful capital city, of course feels invincible that nothing can happen to them. And what Nahum is saying is that even you cannot stand before the Lord when he wants to move. That's what he is saying here. And then he continues by saying this in Nahum chapter one, verse seven. So after saying that wrath is coming, it says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. So here's the good news, right? The good news is that God is good, that God cares for those who take refuge in him. And this is quite a contrast to the first six verses that are talking about judgment and wrath. And so I just want to present this to you this morning. Do you know, as we just sang earlier, that God is good? Do you know that? Not just like, I think he's good because I want him to be good. But like, do you actually know that God is good? Because this is helpful for us to answer the question. For example, why is jealous? Why is God jealous for His people? Right, what would motivate that? Or why does God bring judgment in wrath on those who do evil? Why does He do that? Well, He does it because He is good. And one of the things that's interesting to note when you read the Old Testament, or probably not read, when you get these ideas or these pictures, the popular saying that the God of the Old Testament is vindictive and mean, right? We think that because there's a lot of, not not a lot, but it does talk about judgment and God's wrath and destroying, right? And so people will say, see, this God is mean and the God of the New Testament is nice. And so what's going on here? But what often happens, particularly if you don't actually read it, there's no time to sit back and consider what is it that God is actually destroying? Because it's one thing to destroy and take vengeance on things for the sake of doing it, but it's another thing if what you're destroying is wickedness and evil and is against human flourishing, right? In fact, the reality is it would be unloving for God not to care. It would be unloving for God not to care. Now, again, this is different for us, and particularly the younger that you are and living in the United States of America, we are shielded from a lot of evil and destruction and war. Like, we don't see it firsthand. It doesn't really happen in our country, really, like it does in other places of the world. And so it's easy for us to, in our comfortable, you know, society-ish, if you could say, uh, to read these passages and be really uncomfortable. Until, for example, with social media, even if war is not happening here, we can see how devastating it can be. And so these last few months, if you've been online and you've seen the videos and the images of what's going on in Ukraine and the devastation, devastation of what's happening there, right? You can read that and then you can begin to think, man, I really hope God cares, right? I really hope God cares. Now, listen, I have no idea. I'm not, I don't, I'm, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how to fix it. But just as a human, as you see families being torn apart, as you see bodies lying on the street, as you see these videos of husbands and fathers having to stay in the country while their wives and their children leave, and the heartbreaking videos of them separating, maybe saying goodbye for the very last time. You cannot look at that and not want God to do something, right? You cannot look at that and want God to not do something. And this is what is happening all throughout the Old Testament, and this is what is happening here. What Naomi is showing us is that it's God's vengeance that displays his goodness, It's his vengeance. It's the fact that he actually does take over, that he actually does respond, that though he is patient and kind and loving, every good deed ultimately will be made right. It is because he is good that he cares. It is because he is good that he uh, overtakes evil. It is because he is good that he is willing to destroy and to stop it. His vengeance is not motivated by wrath or uh, by emotion or by immaturity. It's motivated by his perfect love and goodness and justice. This is why, for example, in Romans chapter 12, it'll be on the screen, the apostle Paul writes this, knowing the character of God, he says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And so because of that, here's what you and I should do if you're a follower of Jesus. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will reap heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Now here's the reality. You can only do this. If God is a vengeful God, you can only do this. You can only repay evil with good. You can only repay hurt with forgiveness, with, um, uh, with grace, with mercy, with love, if you actually believe that one day God will right every wrong and will bring justice in all the dark places. You can only do that if you believe this is actually true. Right. This, what this makes me think of, because sometimes we think of enemies as just like our coworker who ate our lunch in the refrigerator for the 30th time, and it's just like, ah, right? But in the first century Rome, Christians were being persecuted and killed. And so to actually love an enemy was a very big deal. When I was reading this passage, it reminded me of a video that was circulating, went pretty, I don't know, viral or, or whatever, about a week into the war in Ukraine, where there was this Russian soldier who happened to be captured in this village. And you would expect, what, people to yell at him, people to throw rocks and stones at him, people to beat him because literally he's part of this, this uh, regime that's coming in here and killing their children and destroying families and destroying everything, their, their cities, all these things, right? You would think that would be justified to do whatever you want to this soldier, but instead, what happened, I mean, it's freezing. The Russian soldiers were, you know, don't have all the proper equipment. And so there's all these uh, you know, things of frostbite and malnutrition, all this sort of thing. And so they, there's this, all there's like dozens of villagers around this soldier. They're giving him hot bread and hot cakes to eat. They gave him something like coffee or hot tea. And then somebody gave him a phone for him to FaceTime his mom. And he's crying. And you, you, know, I don't really, you can't really understand everything that's going on. And you look at that. And be like, man, that's what it looks like to love an enemy. Now, to me, I, I don't know the spiritual condition of the Ukrainians that was going on there. I don't know. But this is how, the only way you can do this with any consistency uh, is to know that God is actually a vengeful God, and he will repay every wrong. And so until that time, we do to others what Christ has done to us, that we show love and we show mercy, because he is a good God who cares for those who trust in This is what Nahum is reminding the people of Israel about as they're in captivity, and it looks like there is no way out. And then he continues by saying this in verse 8, chapter 1. So after saying God is a good God, cares for those who trust in him, he says, but, verse 8, he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood. And he will chase his enemies into darkness. Now, real quick note, the original Hebrew in verse 8 here does not actually say Nineveh. Uh, It actually says his adversaries or his enemies. Now, many English translations, like the one we are reading, um, puts Nineveh in there because it is who Nahum is talking about. But in Nahum's prophecy, other than verse 1, which is the heading, which is not actually part of the prophecy, uh, Nineveh isn't actually mentioned until the middle of chapter 2. Now, part of that is for the tension to build as you read the story, but also part of it is that although this is specifically about Nineveh and Assyria, this truth that Nahum is teaching is true about all things, about all of God's enemies. This is a particular moment in time where you're going to see this acted out, but what he's saying here is not just applicable to Nineveh, but to anyone who would pursue evil and darkness. And then verse 9, it says this, Whatever you plot against the Lord, you here as Nineveh in Assyria, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time, for they will be consumed, uh, consumed like entangled thorns, like the drunk of a drunkard, and like straw that is fully dry. Out has gone uh, one has gone out from you who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor Right, So again, the you here is Nineveh and Assyria. Uh, again, he's not, he doesn't specifically name them yet, although that's who he's about, but it's also, again, a general principle uh, for evil specifically. And ultimately, what he is saying is that Nineveh and Assyria will be destroyed and they will be unable to rebuild a second time. Once they are taken over, they will not come back. And what will happen, like in verse 10, when it says like the drink of a drunkard, uh, whatever they try to do to stop it, Will not happen like a drunkard trying to fight someone trying to fight someone who is sober. They will lose. And then verse twelve it says this: This is evil against. Or sorry, this is what the Lord says. Though they, talking about Nineveh, are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down, and He will pass away. Though I have punished you, the you here is Israel, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. So again, Israel never again will be ruled over Syria. What had happened was because of Israel's unfaithfulness, because they started to engage in a lot of the evil and wickedness of the surrounding nations, God allowed them to be taken over. And so, again, right now, the northern kingdom is actually part of Assyria. They are in a a subjugation to them. And the southern kingdom is a vassal state, so they pretty much have to do whatever they say. He's saying uh, the heavy taxes and the burdens and the constant fear you live in will be in no more. The yoke and chain of Assyria is going to end. It's going to end. And then he says this in verse 14. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. Uh, There will be no offspring to carry on your name. Talking about Nineveh and Assyria here. He says, I will eliminate the carved idol and cast image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Again, what he's saying here is that there will be no more kings of Assyria and their idols will be destroyed. what's happening is that God will display his power over them and his power over their false and their weak gods who can do nothing to stop what the Lord is going to do. What you see happening here is that this is the complete rejection of a life opposed to God. Then eventually everything will be lost even if he's kind and compassionate and gracious and patient with us, everything will ultimately be lost for those who decide to pursue evil and deny the Lord. In other words, what Nahum is also saying here is that no one withstands the judgment of God. So not just things and nations, as we talked about earlier, but also people. No person also will either be able to withstand the judgment of God. Again, this book is in particular about Nineveh and Assyria, but it also shows us the character of who God is. So again, if you were to read Nahum in your own personal devotion or quiet time, you would be very confused of what I'm supposed to do with this. And there are times in scripture where the best thing you can do is simply to learn and to reflect and to think on who God is. And this is what Nahum shows us. Now, you might be tempted to think, um, Okay, that makes sense, but I haven't done nearly anything as evil as like Nineveh. And we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks as we'll see some of the things that they would do. Um, Because it wasn't just like we're going to take over other nations, you know, kingdoms have always done that. Uh, But we have reports and writings of even their own kings where they would skin people alive. Uh, They would behead people and put their heads on stakes uh, right outside the city gates when they would come in. Uh, They would do terrible things to the women. They would enslave the children. They would do tons of awful things. And so you can think, well, that sounds like they need to be judged. And yes, I'm not perfect, but I have not done thump stuff nearly as bad as them. And so maybe God's judgment for me won't be that big of a deal. You know, what's interesting is that in Matthew chapter 25, there's a well-known parable of Jesus. It's the parable of the talents, where where basically a master uh, gives three of his servants different sets of talents, which is basically a bunch of money. And so for one servant, he gives five talents. A next servant, he gives two talents. And then the third servant, he gives one talent. And then he leaves and he comes back to see what they would do with what he gave them. And the servant that he gave five talents uh, doubled his investment. And when he came back, he had doubled it to 10 talents. Uh, The servant who had, and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. The servant who he had been given two talents to when he came back, he had doubled it to four talents. (laughs) And so the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. And then when he got to the one who had only given one talent, he saw that this man did nothing with it. And he says, get away from me, you evildoer, for doing nothing that I have with what I have given you. And then after that parable, he then explains it by saying this. Matthew 25, it'll be on the screen, verse 31. Then Jesus says this. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So when Jesus returns a second time to judge the living and the dead, to uh, recreate the heavens and the earth and to initiate his perfect kingdom. He says this, verse 32, all nations, all people will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, what you see happening here is that those who honored and trusted in me, the King, in Jesus, welcome. Who were faithful with what, they were, with what they had, with what they were given, regardless of how much, how much money, how much influence, how much fame, how much rank in society, regardless of where you have found yourself, those who have trusted and followed me, welcome. Right? What you did with what you had matters. And to those who went their own way, listen, to whatever varying degree... The kingdom is not for you. It is not for you. It is those who have trusted and followed me, not those who did whatever they wanted or went their own way with the time that they had. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25. And this is also what Nahum is saying here. that The the nation, the people that have gone their own way should not expect for everything to end well for them. And then it says this, the last verse we'll read in Nahum this morning, Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, it says this. After talking about, again, what's going to come to Nineveh, the destruction, it says this in verse 15. It says, look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. So this last verse here, Nahum again is addressing Judah, and it's this imagery of the messenger running from the hills to announce that the destruction of Nineveh, and therefore the opposition has ended, that peace is here, and so that they would celebrate this messenger coming to them. And so what they can do now is that they can remove the Assyrian idols, and they can worship the Lord freely which is what Nahum tells him to do. When he talks about the festivals and the vows, he's talking about the things that God talks about, the sacrifices, the rituals, the things that they would do to have regular rhythms and practices in their lives to reorient their heart and their minds around the Lord, that you can do these things again, and the people would celebrate. Now, again, remember, these people, there is not an Israelite alive who has not been under the oppression and the rule of the Assyrians, Right? The unfathomable joy that this would bring them when it actually happens, they probably could not put into words. Now, again, this is a specific example, however, of what the gospel ultimately is, that God is redeeming, that God is rescuing, and that God is inviting in the lost. That Israel's oppression, again, was due to their own unfaithfulness. And now God is going to rescue them simply because he is kind and compassionate. And that He wants to restore Israel. Why? Not because the people are somehow better than anyone else in the world, but because through Israel, the Messiah is going to come to bless the entire world. And this is what the gospel is, that God invites us in, that he will one day overtake all evil and all wrong. And he wants to offer you grace and mercy instead of judgment. Again, Matthew 25, verse 34, the verse we just read, I'll read it again one more time. What does it say? It says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Not you who tried really hard or who gave a lot of money or who did a lot of good things. Those who are blessed and given grace. And what what for? Because they will come to inherit the kingdom prepared for you. That not only does God give it, but that God prepares it that he invites you and me in. And so when you read Nahum and you know the character of God and that he will not let evil go unpunished, here's what we see happening in the book of Nahum. That evil will be met by grace or judgment, but it will be met. Evil will be met by grace or judgment, but it will be met. In fact, it was interesting was when you read the Old Testament, not just kind of the cliff notes or what people say online, you begin to actually get frustrated. You begin to think, God, why are you so kind? Why are you so compassionate? Why you had already, let Nineveh, you'd already told Nineveh to repent once, and now you gave them 150 years before you're going to destroy them? That doesn't seem fair to me until I consider my own life and my own decisions. And when we talk about God uh, getting rid of evil... What you don't hear people say often is, I want God to rid evil in the world and I want him to start with me. Now we don't want that. It's the other people. It's the other nations. It's those people. It's the people that do the things that we don't like, not the people that do the things that we do, right? Get rid of them first. And if God's going to get rid of evil, why start with anyone else but us? And so what God is saying here is that he will meet it. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to rely on your own perceived sense of goodness or you're going to rely on the grace that he is offering you. And the way to get the grace that he is offering you is simply to tell the truth about who you are and the need that you have. One of the things, uh, if you're a parent, you you could probably relate to this, Um, it's really important for Christina and I, for our kids to simply tell the truth, right? We tell them all the time, no matter what you have done, you will always get in more trouble if you lie, always. And I get it's hard as a kid, even as an adult. You don't want to tell the truth. You want to cover things up. You're embarrassed. You're ashamed. So I get the tendency to want to do it. But we really try to teach our kids these things. So Roman, our youngest, he just turned four, uh, there's been, he's been doing something lately that we've been trying to get him to stop doing. And one of the things is when he does it, he doesn't want to say that he does it, right? And so I've had a lot of conversations about, hey, Roman, if I ask you if you did this and you lie to me, you will always get in more trouble, Always. And then, if he lies, I'll say, Here's your punishment for what you have done. And this punishment is for lying. And if you had told the truth, this would not happen to you. And so, a couple of weeks ago, uh, he did it again. And I said, Hey, Roman, did you do this thing? And right away, without taking a second, uh, without trying to think about how he's going to cover up, he just told me the truth. Right then, right there, he just said, He did it. And in that moment, what happened to him is not, I was so glad that he simply told the truth that he didn't even get in trouble. He didn't even get in trouble because I just wanted him to know that he has to be able to trust us and to tell us when he does something wrong. Now, I know that's not the perfect maybe analogy for life, but this is what God wants us to do. He wants to give us grace. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for our actions. Certainly there are, but he wants to give us grace if we would simply tell the truth because if not judgment will come because he is a compassionate god he is a righteous god and he is a good god who will not let evil go on And so it will be met with grace or it will be met with judgment, but it will be met. And the reason we gather and we worship and the reason we celebrated last week with Easter is because God gives us grace that he sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves so that anyone who would trust and follow him in the midst of our evil and our shame and our wickedness and our going the own way that Jesus bore it on himself. And he says, welcome in," And he says, you're invited in my kingdom Because I love you. Evil will be met with grace or judgment. And Jesus wants to offer us grace.